Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of Breakup Songs, where Alan and I will be curating side A of a mixtape featuring sad songs for severed relationships. I like that. Sad songs for severed relationships. It's pretty, pretty spot on. Uh, you know, I've, I have never broken up with anyone in my life. In every breakup, I was the one who was dumped. And the experience of having your soul shredded by another human being, that's just the beginning. You know, the, the real pain comes in the days, the weeks, the months of wallowing that follow. And I'm not alone. I think we've all been there. Sometimes, to quote Jay Giles, love stinks, <laughs> you know. But whether you find solace in seclusion or take comfort in a bar stool, there's, there is a silver lining. Generations of musicians have written songs to soundtrack the pain. You know, this was, this was one of the easiest uh, playlists, one of, one of the easiest uh, mixtapes that I've, I've thrown together. I mean, there were plenty of songs that would have made the cut, but I mean, it, it was very easy for me to, to just choose the ones that I thought were the most gut-wrenching. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had talked uh, about several ways we could have addressed this, and, you know, there are a lot of really angry breakup songs. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of like unrequited love songs, uh, songs where a relationship from way past, you know, somebody's kind of going back and reminiscing about the pain from years ago. But I think we kind of decided we would hit songs that were more immediate and a little more heartfelt. And as you say, in some cases, I have some real gut-wrenching oh, yeah. songs as well. Well, and, and yeah, because it, it kind of became unwieldy. And at one point I was thinking about kind of going through the stages of grief, you know, from denial through acceptance, just go through all of them and have kind of like a an arc in, in the songs that I was choosing. But, you know, when, I, I just couldn't decide. I mean, it felt uneven to me, I guess. And, and when you're suffering from heartbreak, I mean, obviously there's a song for whatever you're going through, right? I mean, at any given moment, denial, anger, depression, a thirst for revenge, quiet resignation. And, and like you said, some songs are righteous cries of, of joy, following the end of a toxic relationship. Others are pensive meditations on human connection. And some just want to burn the very concept of love to the ground. But yeah, my, my long list originally had them all, but I ended up choosing songs that fit my own life experience, I guess. And in the end, I thought it made the most sense just to, to focus on the misery and despair because that's what I remember most about breaking up. So there's nothing empowering or angry or forgiving here. It's just, you know, agony. And, and songs to drown out the sobbing, I guess. That, that's most of mine. I do end to side A and side B with songs of hope, of songs where they begin kind of with, with the pain or the anger, okay. but they resolve themselves in the, in the sense that it's time to move on. I just, I wonder, I mean, these, some of these, in fact, um, I'm going to have a difficult time, I think. I'm really going to try to keep myself neutral because um, I kind of got really emotional just preparing for this episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm, I was just, I'm afraid I'm going to lose it on <laughs> on, on the uh, podcast here. So I'm going to really just try to, to remove myself from a lot of this. But there's a, there's a lot of emotion here, a lot of really, really raw performances from these artists. And so I wanted to end on a little bit of an upbeat. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you loud and clear. I, some of these songs made it on every breakup mixtape that I've made <laughs> in my youth. And some of these are newer songs that I wish had been around, you know, back in back at that time because they would have they would have made the statement that I wanted to make on on all of those mixtapes from long ago but I mean yeah it I think it was mostly the wave of nostalgia 
I mean, because as I was listening to the songs, choosing my songs, it all came back. You know, all the, all those, you know, those nights of, of, you know, just not wanting to to face the world and, and just wanting to hibernate and get lost and it just, oh, I mean, so much pain. You know, I, I remember very clearly just the, the heartache. So it came back, but at the same time, when you're 22 years married, happily married, you know, it, you look at this through a different lens and it, it's, I don't know, it, it's just kind of funny to me now to look at this list and, you know, being at a place where everything is, pretty much perfect for me, at least in the relationship game, these songs can still bring me to tears. I mean, it's just bizarre that that's something that can happen. Yeah, I don't think I chose, well, in one song, one song may have been one, I don't really remember. I'm sure I made a breakup tape at some point to make myself feel better, and one of these <laughs> on here might have appeared at the time, because I would have been listening to this band at that time, okay. but I can't recall any, I can't recall any direct connections other than the fact that the, the, the stories behind some of these songs and just the performances of some of the artists oh, yeah. is really what's kind of gut-wrenching for me. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to delve into any personal history here. I mean, this isn't guilty pleasures. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, I, well, but did you ever make the, the, the mixtapes and share them with the ex? Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I hope I didn't, because that'd be really rude, I, I, I think. Especially, okay. well, I should put it this way. If, if I were broken up with, and I'm sure I was at some point, then maybe I would have done that. But um, as of the breakup, the person breaking up, if I'd had ever done that, that's just okay. cruel. Yeah, well, again, I never broke no, up. Unless the person maybe was unfaithful and you just felt like you wanted to get in a right. dig. At the, I just, yeah. I honestly don't remember. Okay, well, like I said, I've, I've never broken up with anybody. And the mixtapes that I made, they weren't, I don't recall ever making any that were mean spirited. It was more of a, you know, comeback gotcha. kind of thing. But yeah, you know, uh, my whole past is a fog. So. Oh, oh yeah, I know. <laughs> That's why I, I like getting I'm, together I'm, old friends because I hear stories for the first time <laughs> that I'm involved in. Well, I'm here, so if you want to, uh, you know, if you want to review any of that while we go through these no, next I think two I'm episodes, good. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I, I remember your stories Uh-oh. as well as I remember mine. So, jeez. Uh, All right, I think you have the first pick. I do. All right, let's go. All right. Well, my first selection is Ain't No Sunshine by Bill Withers from the 1971 album Just As I Am. Uh, the late soul icon is stuck in a cycle on this heartbreaking classic. Uh, his lover has left him as she has done many times before. I mean, he, he very clearly says, you know, wonder this time where she's gone, wonder if she's gone to stay. And then his, his uncertainty is palpable as he sings it. Anyone who has endured an on-again, off-again relationship I, I think and painfully relate to this one. Um, the song features haunting instrumentation, um, yet there is no instrumental introduction as the vocals come in right away. Record labels typically discourage their artists from doing that because it's bad for marketing purposes. I mean, without opening instrumentation, DJs can't introduce or hype the song as it begins. Still, Wither's choice to lead with vocals gave the song a more interesting structure. Um, the song is unusual in another way, though. Um, and this one was not Withers' idea. The part where Withers repeats, I know, I know, is arguably the most iconic piece of the song, but it wasn't what he had in mind. Withers first used the repeated I knows as a placeholder. But when he was ready to write the new verse, the producer insisted that he leave the song as it was. Uh, there was a general consensus in the studio, and Withers deferred to everyone's judgment, which was a wise choice, given who was there. Uh, Booker T. Jones of Booker T. and the MGs produced the album. 
His bandmates, Al Jackson and Donald Dunn, were sitting in. Stephen Stills was on lead guitar, Jim Kelton was on drums, and Graham Nash was assisting Booker from the booth. So when their general feeling was, leave it like that, Withers didn't argue. The MGs, as an aside, they were the backup band for Otis Redding when he recorded Doc of the Day in 67. And that famous whistling in the third verse of that song was something Redding did as a placeholder. Hmm. And when he attempted to write a third verse, Booker T gave Redding the same advice. So the whistling stayed, just like Withers' verses of I Knows. Um, clearly, you, you don't argue with Booker, I guess. Uh, in total, Withers sings the line I Know 26 times in just over two minutes. Uh, for me, though, that repeated lyric, it, it you know, it, metaphorically, it's his loss for words. It's a metaphor for an even greater loss that seems inevitable. So... If not this time, his lover will eventually leave him for good. And that painful realization makes this one one of the most heartbreaking ballads I think ever written. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. And she's always gone too long anytime. She goes away Wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away Yeah, great choice. Good yeah. one to start with. Love it. I'm also going to go with a classic here. I'm going to go back to 1965, actually, to begin. Oh. Um, this may be the most covered song of all time. Okay. Do we have a match on this? Because I figured we'd match on we'd, this. We have an artist match. Okay. All right. Yeah, I went with Yesterday. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to avoid it, but, you know, it's so easy sometimes to avoid the obvious choices. And when I just went back and I listened to my extended list, my long, my long list, it, it is. It's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's a classic for a reason. It really is kind of gut wrenching. Oh, it's beautiful. And yeah. but it, but it's it's beautiful at the same time. Yeah, know? it's a beautiful song. But if you think if you listen to, oh, again, I, not being a lyrics person, I know lyrically. But in this case, lyrically, of course, it kills um, you. I had to be lyrical in this case, and it, it really fit. What which uh, Beatles did you choose? Well, it, it's not a direct artist match because it's actually in my alternates. But I went with for no one. Oh yeah, that's from Revolver. Yeah. Um, you know, conventional wisdom gives the edge to yesterday, obviously. But yesterday, you know, it's like I said, I think it's it's certainly beautiful with its sweeping strings and simple lyrics. But to me, it's more adolescent in its mood than the brutally adult for no one. I mean, because here, McCartney strips out all the sentiment in favor of a crisp, hard-headed look at the end of a relationship, and it's devastating. Yesterday feels speculative. I mean, McCartney wrote it when he and Jane Ash were still happily together. But for no one was written while they were breaking up, and it could only have been written by someone who'd been there. Um, lyrically, McCartney uses words economically on it. I mean, his terseness suffuses the song with a quiet dread. Uh, it's stark, spared, numbing, call it what you will. But yeah, it's uh, McCartney's minimalism, I mean, it just evokes loneliness. So I, 
kind of went with for no one. Um, but as I said, yesterday is the logical, better choice, and that was an alternate on my list anyway. Um, I had yesterday for the longest time. Yeah. And right. then, I don't know, I put on Revolver. I had forgotten about for no one, honestly. <laughs> I was listening to Revolver, and I heard it, and just immediately yesterday got scratched off the list, and for no one replaced it so well, I, I figure I go this route most people consider this maybe the greatest breakup song of all time oh yeah this uh it's got this aching morose melody right that kind of helped console broken hearts since 1965 this is actually kind of significant for another reason too it's, it's really kind of the first solo effort by a Beatle mm-hmm. um, it just features McCartney on vocal and acoustic guitar backed by a string quartet so no other Beatles were involved in the writing or recording of the song to the point where the band didn't even want it released as a Beatles recording right um, they suggested maybe Paul McCartney release it as a solo single but uh, George Martin and um, Brian Epstein of course didn't want to do that because they felt like it would show a weakness or a breakup of the Beatles. I didn't want to like encourage any talk of, of, you know, the members going their separate ways. So they eventually, you know, I agreed to have it included on the, um, actually it was a single. It was on help. It was on help in the British version. It was not included on the help right. on the yeah. capital release. Um, it was just a single in the United States, but yes, in the British version well, it was on help. Wasn't it on yesterday and today? Yes. In, in on the yesterday US. and today was the, yeah, was, was the, the American US release, release um, for that one. I, um, yeah, I, you know, it was also the song that actually changed a lot of people's opinions of the Beatles. Sure, yeah. I mean, Sinatra, I, I've read that Sinatra, you know, hated, hated the, you know, the the Fab Four until he heard Yesterday. And he actually conceded that it was one of the most beautiful songs he'd ever heard. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow hanging over me Oh, yesterday came suddenly Why she It didn't sound like the Beatles, and that's another reason. You know, the band may have been a little bit jealous of, of McCartney in this case, but they also felt like it just didn't sound like their sound. Oh, right? not at it that didn't, time. It didn't match their image, and that was another reason they really resisted it. But um, good for us. Uh, they went ahead and released it. In fact, Rolling Stone uh, magazine and MTV have both proclaimed it the greatest pop song of all time. Yep. For good reason. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have heard this story, but I'm going to repeat it just in case you haven't. Uh, it came to Paul McCartney in a dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, he woke up and he was sure that it was a melody he'd heard before. You know, he grew up um, from a very musical household, everything from Tin Pan Alley songs and, and Broadway favorites and uh, all sorts of pop in the larger sense, not just pop rock, but pop music, you know, for over 100 years he'd been familiar with. And he was sure it was a song he'd heard growing up. And so he just kept asking people and he'd hum the tune and say, what is this? And nobody could come up with anything and they would say you know i think you wrote it paul it's probably yours and finally after a while he just decided okay i guess i'll i guess i'll claim it and he had the melody first he wasn't sure exactly you talked about filler uh, lines or, or um, placeholder lines his placeholder lines was do you know this um scrambled eggs 
Okay, I have heard that. Scrambled I, eggs. I, I don't know. Man, I don't know where I heard that, but I've heard that before. Yeah. And if you haven't heard it, and this is on Spotify, so we're going to put it on our mentioned songs. Okay. okay. So uh, 2010, Paul appeared on Jimmy Fallon. And Jimmy Fallon, you know, brought this up and That's, yeah. together they collaborated. Uh, they actually fleshed out the lyrics for Scrambled Eggs and they performed it together. Oh, that is uh, Just a little sample of the lyrics. Uh, scrambled Eggs, Scrambled Eggs, Oh My Baby, How I Love Your Legs. It, it, just, <laughs> <laughs> it goes down, downhill for there. I think it's in Chicken Thighs or, or Chicken Thighs, How I Love, you know, it's a, How I Love Your Eyes. Something, something along the lines of, okay. of poultry and, and other types of... I can't of, wait to hear this. Yeah, no, it's... Yeah, I think you were the one who years ago told me scrambled eggs was the play. Yes. Just, Cause that, that the moment you said it, it came back to me, but I, yeah, it took a while for him to come up with the lyrics. So yeah. eventually he came up with, you know, he, he was looking for something phonetically that fit other than scrambled eggs and mm. came up with yesterday and then went from there as he wrote the lyrics. So right. yeah, I'm just going to start with, uh, with the, with the clear uh, favorite in terms of commercial success. Um, yesterday by the Beatles. Oh, it's a great choice. I mean, it's just that haunting melody, you know, and, and, I don't know. Paul's delivery there, it's he uses such restraint. I mean, it's almost it creates a song of claustro- that that feels claustrophobic to me, I guess, with loss. What's the best line? Do you think? Uh I what I as a lyrics per I can't recall. Oh, that's true. I'm asking song. the wrong guy. Yeah. For me it's suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be. Oh yeah. That's There's a, a shadow hanging over me. I mean yeah. and just that 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 verse. That's gets pretty gut wrenching, I think. Every time. Yeah. All right, great choice. I I kind of figured you'd have yesterday, which is why I kind of felt safe going with four no one. But I um yeah I, I relegated it to the alternate list anyway, which probably going to hell <laughs> for not including the Beatles in my hey it's on the list 12. now. Um, okay, well my number two. Uh, this one was originally written in 1977, was recorded in 1981, and reached number one in 1987. So this was a 10-year process um, for Billy Vera, and it took a very long time for him to get the due, uh, the credit. That and I thought you would did. lead with this one. I knew you would have it, so uh, I didn't even yeah. throw it on my long list. Um, you know, every hit single has a story. I mean, it, it always requires some combination of timing, luck, cultural momentum. Uh, a record label can employ all of its resources in an attempt to propel a song to the top of the charts, and sometimes it works. But the chart, I mean, it's fluid, it's unpredictable, and nobody can ever predict with 100% certainty what song the public will espouse at any given moment. Sometimes the most unlikely of songs becomes this cultural phenomenon, and it catapults it to the top of the charts organically without any financial support from the power players in the recording industry. At this moment, by Billy Vera and the Beatles, uh, the Beatles, <laughs> by Billy Vera and the Beaters, um, is the perfect example. Um, Billy Vera, I mean, he, he scored this number one single when he was 42 years old. Um, he was a journeyman with decades in the game. Which I thought was old when it came out. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that doesn't it, seem so old now. No, well, in, in the music, in the recording industry, it, it's It's old, ancient. yes. Yeah. It's Hugh Lewis age, yeah, almost. Exactly. Almost. Yeah. Um, you know, Vera had spent decades in the game, and he had nothing to show for it. And at the time, he was scraping out a living as a bit part actor and singing with his bar band on the weekends. When one night... A producer for one of America's most popular sitcoms happened to enter the bar where Vera was performing, and he was moved by a song that Vera sang at this moment, and that song ended up soundtracking a few key emotional scenes on the sitcom. And when it did, the response from viewers was unlike anything the TV network had ever experienced. The TV show, in case our listeners have forgotten, 
or if they're too young to have been there at the, at the moment. I mean, was, if we have a Gen X audience, they're going to know this. They so. should, yeah. Uh, the TV show, of course, is Family Ties, and the year was 85. Um, the NBC sitcom was in its fourth season. It was a huge ratings hit for the network, and its star, Michael J. Fox, had already starred in the biggest movie of the year, which meant that he'd also helped drive The Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News to number one on the Hot 100. Fox may have also invented rock and roll music while time traveling, but I'd have to check my sources on that one. Um, but yeah, Family Ties writer-producer Michael Whitehorn, I mean, he needed a sad love song to soundtrack that romantic scene between Fox's Alex P. Keaton and Ellen Reed, um, the love interest played by Tracy Pollan. She would actually become Fox's wife in real life a year later. And Whitehorn had tried to license songs from bigger names, but those songs were too expensive. And as luck would have it, he stopped in for a drink at a Los Angeles bar called At My Place, heard Vera's emotional performance of At This Moment, and unbelievably, its exposure on family ties took the nation by storm. This one's called At This Moment. What did you think? I would do at this moment when you're standing before me with tears in your eyes trying to tell me that you have found you another and you just don't love me no more When I'm faced with the knowledge that you just don't love me, would you think I would curse you or say things to hurt you? Because you just don't love me no more. The unfortunate thing, though, the album from which it came was out of print and the record label Alpha Records no longer existed. So when people heard the song played on the show, NBC received so much mail. I mean, it, mail came in, in bags of numbering tens of thousands daily asking who sings this song, what is it called, where can I find it? And the answer was, you can't find it. So Vera, he tried to record the song a second time. No label was interested in signing him. But Richard Foos, who owned Rhino Records, uh, came to the rescue. Um, for those that may not remember Rhino, um, back in the age of CDs, they, they were the ones uh, responsible for reissuing oldies. Right, out-of-print stuff. Out-of-print stuff. Um, so Vera told Foos what had happened, asked how many records Rhino would need to sell to break even. Foos had a low overhead because Rhino was a small company. He told Vera that 2,000 copies would be all he'd need. Vera guaranteed 2,000 albums <laughs> because the response was so big, and they sold far more than 2,000 albums. The tune, um, it eventually hit number one on both the Billboard Hot 100 and the Adult Contemporary Charts in 87. Uh, it quickly sold over a million copies in the U.S. It became one of the very last gold-certified singles in the 45 RPM format. The song also hit the Billboard R&B chart, the Billboard Hot Country chart, 
Country music was moving away from pop at the time, but at this moment hit number 42. It would be the last song to appear on the country charts and reach number one on the pop charts for 13 years. So, as for the song itself, though, I know I've been rambling, but I, you know, the history of it is just, it fascinates me. And the song was just a true underdog. Unofficially, I, I call it Tail Between His Legs. <laughs> at this moment, it's, it, it's a lounge crooner piano ballad that pulls out every 80s cliche, Dave. I mean, you got the Billy Joel light piano line, the slow drum fill that signals a building swell into the next verse, and of course that requisite sax solo that sounds like it should run over the closing credits of Saturday Night Live. And Vera, he has a mediocre voice at best. I mean, he comes off as a weekend warrior, that guy with the best voice in your office cutting loose a karaoke night after a few drinks. But I tell you what, I was a fan of Family Ties. I was an even bigger fan of Michael J. Fox. And at age 14, the on-screen breakup of Alex and Ellen absolutely destroyed me. I think it was probably the first time I had been emotionally invested in an on-screen romance. And my empathy for Fox's character was genuine. And just that memory of Alex P. Keaton sobbing on screen as the song played, it still gets to me. And when paired with the memory of my own heartbreaks from long ago, the grief just grows that much larger. So at this moment, had to make an appearance um, on this mixtape. I mean, it, it it had made an appearance on every breakup mixtape I ever made. As an aside, according to Michael J. Fox and Tracy Pollan, they couldn't get it near a dance floor for at least 10 years after Family Ties ended without the banner DJ playing this song. We, I don't know, we, we forget how big this really was, but it took an override application of the tune on multiple episodes of Must See TV to break the song commercially. There were a couple other good tunes on that release in the Billy Vera. Oh, there were, yeah. Release. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's... I think, didn't he have another single from that as well? I think... Oh, I don't know. Uh, there might have been another song on there that hit, too, from the success of that at I this moment. I don't know. I, I don't know if anything else hit, but... But it just um, proves that a song in isolation... Uh, it, it mean, put it this way. Um, it, promotion of a song... A success of a song depends so much on how it's promoted. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Right. A, a song by itself. I used to think when I was a kid, I guess naively, that a song was was either great or an average on its own merit. And I suppose that's true in, in a certain sense. But how many great songs had been written and recorded by people that didn't have the right promotional muscle or weren't in the right place at the right time or had the right agent and went off into obscurity? And how many songs like this that <laughs> one in a million that would have been uh, just another obscure song that no one ever heard of goes to number one in Billboard. It just shows you in context how much a song can, can mean in context, in this case, to a television show or a movie um, or, you know, a news event. Uh, it just, yeah, music itself combined with uh, context makes a big difference. It really does. And yeah, I, I just, you thought I'd lead with it. I mean, I, yeah, I did. it makes, I, it makes like, sense. Like, if, like when you said breakup, I'm like, okay, so Billy Vera is going to be his first pick. Cause I know you. <laughs> yeah. You I, loved the song in high school. Oh, I did. You listened yeah. to it constantly. Well, I was dumped a lot in high school, but yeah, the, the subgenre of total surrender of dignity, you know, I, at this moment it, it stamped out its place, uh, you know, in love song history. I, I still stand by this. I think it is the most genuine response to the moment of breakup that's ever been recorded. And it's, a song that really and Billy Vera wrote it himself or he recorded yeah, no, it he, no, okay. he wrote it yeah he wrote it so he um, was a good songwriter too yeah um, but yeah I mean it really is it's a song that under normal circumstances we would not know I mean right. he's, there was nothing spectacularly you know unique about the song it was just cliche from, from start to finish but I mean that line I would subtract 20 years from my life I mean it's just uh, still gets me so alright 
Great choice, and one was that was expected. All right, I'm going to kind of move up from 1965 all the way to 1997 Ooh, on this one. Okay. Now, I know anyone listening, when I say Ben Folds 5, uh-huh. and I say the album Whenever and Ever Amen, people are going to automatically assume one of the greatest angry breakup songs of all time, Song, song for, for the Dumped. Dumped. Yeah. But I did not go with Song for the Dumped. Love that song. Well, I can't. We're family friendly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, there's that. There's part of it. Right. But I I may have been tempted to include it other than the fact that we said we weren't going to do angry breakup songs. Right. So one would not expect on the same album as Song for the Dumped would be this really heartfelt, uh, reminiscent song uh, about the breakup of a relationship. And the song is called Smoke. Not sure if you're familiar with Smoke. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I love this album. Yeah, it's one of, Smoke is one of my favorite, uh, not just Ben Fold's fan, songs, but favorite songs of the 90s. Um, and I just want to say, if you haven't heard Song for the Dumped, uh, it is just a hilariously oh, angry response to being fantastic. broken up with. <laughs> okay? And uh, yeah, you could, yeah, it's not family friendly, so make yeah. sure the kiddos aren't around. Yeah, if, you, if you've ever wanted your money back after a, a bad breakup, this, this is the song <laughs> And your for black you. t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it, this song is just, it's so sentimental, it's so poetic and it's, it's a metaphor it's a metaphor of a relationship and a book and so the image is of somebody um, sitting by the fire and they're just tearing this book apart literally pulling the pages out of the book from depart you know detaching it from the spine and throwing the pages into the fire and watching them burn up um, as symbolic for the relationship is a great lyricist but this one always kind of stuck out to me as being maybe above all the rest mm-hmm. well there's an explanation for that uh, let's let's talk about Nick Hornby for a second are you familiar with Nick Hornby uh, yeah okay. one of my favorite authors High Fidelity Fever Pitch About a Boy yep uh, novelist and a lot of his novels have been adapted into uh, British uh, movies as well as American uh, adaptations as well and he wrote a book called a, a non-fiction book of, of essays called Songbook I'm not familiar with this. And these essays were about songs that, you know, songs from the rock era that really emotionally stirred him to the point of, you know, whatever. Either he made a personal connection in his own life or he wanted to talk about how that song was set apart from all the others. And one of the essays in Songbook um, was Smoke by Ben Folds Five. Okay. So this is why I love Ben Folds, because he's just just a a down-to-earth, honest guy. He reaches out to Nick. Uh, Hornby to say thank you very much like he can't even describe how much it means to him to be uh, singled out uh, in that essay but also to confess that yeah the song was co-written but Ben did not write the lyrics he wrote the music so he couldn't take credit for the lyrics of the of the song itself he actually uh, wrote that with um, Anna Goodman was a, a 
so, a lyricist that he'd worked with okay. for a time. Yeah, I, I thought he wrote his own lyrics. Well, he did most of the time, but, yeah. but this was one exception. So that's okay. why I said okay. it sounded a little bit different than something Ben Folds would write. Yeah, no, uh, right. but even Nick Hornaby thought it was a, an original lyric. So, but it's, it's co-written. It says co-written by Ben Folds and and Anna Goodman, but doesn't you know distinguish who wrote the music and right. who wrote the lyrics. Yeah. Um, but anyway, regardless of that, uh, a, a great friendship developed between Nick and Ben, and they began to correspond, and then they met, and that developed into a uh, album, which I'm going to refer to on our next thematic episode on Uncharted, an <laughs> album called Lonely Avenue, where Nick Hornby writes all of the lyrics and Ben Folds writes all of the music. Okay. In fact, it's credited as a Nick as a Ben Folds and Nick Hornby album, so it's. Check it out. I'll talk more about that um, in a couple weeks. Um, but yeah, like I said, the, the, the song treats the arc of a relationship like a book. The pages detail the past. Uh, the narrator's pulling his pages, throwing them onto the fire. It's a symbolic gesture of... Uh, you could either you could look at it two ways. You could say it's a symbolic gesture of moving on, or you could say it's just a bitter look back. You know, that, that, that initial reaction we have after a breakup where we're like, it was, it was wasted time. Uh, how did I waste my time on this? Don't try to, don't try to salvage any good from it because it's all just smoke. You know, just burn it up. Just get it out of here. Get it out of my mind. Get it out of my life. So, it's sentimental, but it, maybe there's a little bit of bitterness there too, depending on how you look at it. Um, one, of the, the lyrics go leaf by leaf, page by page. Throw this book away. All the sadness, all the rage. Throw the book away. Rip out the binding. Tear the glue. All of the grief we never even knew we had it all, but now it's smoke. So there's a little bit of bitterness there. A little, yeah. Okay, well, my number three. Um, this time it's my turn. I go back to 1965. All right. Um, this selection, hands down, is the most soulful song ever recorded. And I, you know, I, I think we've we've made reference. I am a huge Sam Cooke fan. I, there, there was a three-year period in my life where I listened to nothing but Sam Cooke. That this is true. This is not by Sam Cooke. I, I do not believe Sam has the most soulful song ever created. I think that credit, that that title, uh, is much deserved, and it, it goes to Otis Redding. Did oh, real quick? Does Sam Cooke do uh, "Don't Get Around Much" anymore? He he has a version he has a version of it. Of it. Okay, because yeah, I thought you might it. might choose that one too. No, um, no. This one is titled "I've Been Loving You Too Long." Okay, it's by Otis Redding. Yep. It's from the album Otis Blue. Otis Redding sings soul. And it is considered by music critics and writers to be Otis Redding's greatest vocal performance. I'll go one further, and I will say it is the greatest performance of any soul singer, which is a, I mean, that's a bold statement. But there's just something about this song. Redding's rasp on the single, it, it sounds like he had been crying for a week before laying down the track. And, and the blaring horn buildup, it kind of hits like a punch in the stomach. The lyrics are simple. But the way his voice ascends and drops, it, it's just deeply moving to me. No other artist has ever captured suffering at this level in song. Uh, I've Been Loving You Too Long moves moves me, it, like really like no other song can. It, it's almost physically painful to listen to this song. I mean, if, if I'm going to lose it, it would be to this one on, on, on the episode. Um, yeah, I, as I said, painful to listen to, but at the same time, I could listen all day. Uh, Redding's pleading vocals, backed by producer Steve Cropper's appreciated guitar parts and a punctuated horn, it, it brings back a flood of memories. I mean, I played this song on repeat with every heartbreak I endured, and I, I added the song to every breakup mixtape I made, so it was only logical that I include it one more time. Redding wrote the song with Jerry Butler, 
in a Buffalo hotel room when the two were touring together in the mid-60s. And, and the song finds Otis in a predicament. I mean, his love affair is going cold. His lover wants to call it quits, but he's been loving her for so long, he can't stop now. Um, it was recorded in 65, and it was released as a single in April of that year. Um, it became his best-selling single while he was alive. Uh, the song was subsequently included on his third album, Otis Blue, Otis Redding Sings Soul, as I said. Peaked at number 21 on the Billboard Hot 100, number 2 on the Billboard R&B chart. And, and Billboard described it as, quote, a winning, tender, and soulful piece of material and performance by Mr. Pitiful himself. Um, yeah, songs by Redding appeared in the U.S. Billboard pop and R&B charts as early as 1962. But like I said, this was the biggest hit while he was alive. Sadly, uh, Redding died in a plane crash on December 10th, 1967. He, he just missed entry into that 27 club. He was actually 26 years old at the time of his death. But his last single, Dock of the Bay, which I talked about, of course, with Booker T, um, that one broke all records that I've Been Loving You Too Long previously held. Dock of the Bay went on to become Otis's best-selling and highest-charting song, but... Uh, this one, I, David, it, it, I, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to find any song that just sounds so, so despairing. I mean, it, it's it, Redding sounds like he's in anguish, and it, it, it gets me every time. I've been loving you too long to stop now. And you want to be free My love is growing stronger As you become a habit to me Who am loving you Too long I don't want to stop now Very good. Yeah, that's good. good. Two solid classics out of the gate. All right. Um, you done? I'm done. All right. So I'm going to go now to 1963. So we're, we're going further and further away from Got some the going Gen X here. wheelhouse. But these are songs that Gen Xers, I, I think, know. Um, this one uh, is maybe the most passive-aggressive breakup song of all time. And it takes just the type of person like Bob Dylan to make it work. Okay. Don't think twice. It's all right. With, uh, that was off of the free wheeling, that was off of the free wheeling Bob Dylan album. That's hard to say fast. I'm glad I didn't include Dylan. Yeah, because we would have had yet another artist artist match. I almost went with. It's not me, babe. No, I almost went with. If you see her. Oh say yeah. Love. yeah, 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 yeah. But I, you know, I, I didn't. So I, I, I figured I'd leave Dylan to you. I was confident you'd have one. It's not me, babe. Was a little too angry. Although there's a great version with Johnny Cash. Oh yeah, of that one. Absolutely. So. Yeah, don't think twice. It's all right. Um, this, I mean, if you're familiar with the Free Will and Bob Dylan album, gosh, that's hard to say fast. Um, and if you <laughs> if you watched Vanilla Sky, there's a really cool moment there where they recreate the album. It's that iconic album where Bob Dylan's walking down the street and his girlfriend, uh, Suze Rolotto, is is on his arm. And the song is actually written by, or 
the song was actually written about her because she decided at the time they were dating to kind of take an extended uh, holiday. I think she was over in um, like Italy or something, and she decided to stay longer. And Bob was just kind of upset about it. So he wrote the song based on that. So I'm not sure if they actually split because I think they may have dated past this. Apparently, mm-hmm. she came back from Europe and they were able to um, keep things going for a while. But uh, but yeah, this, this was written for her. Um, the song begins kind of with... Um, kind of a gracious attitude towards the end of a relationship. And you think it's kind of a positive man. Like, okay, the guy's t- taking it in stride, um, but becomes more and more resentful as the song goes on. And so I think that's what makes it kind of passive aggressive. Right. For instance, the final verse, goodbye's too good a word, babe. So I'll just say fare thee well. I ain't saying you treated me unkind. You could have done better, but I don't mind. You just wasted my precious time, but don't think twice. It's all right. <laughs> he just goes back and forth and yeah that's just uh you gotta love bob dylan oh yeah um the song's also a great example of how dylan um was really good at taking old folk songs you know he he did a lot of folk covers um at the beginning of his career and then he mixed in a few originals uh and then he got to the point where he takes some of these folk melodies and then he would kind of turn them into something original and so musically, um, that's happening here. Um, but he's also beginning to explore deeper topics like breakups. Um, a lot of the early stuff was, was what you, you know, of course, he hates being called just like Kurt, right? That's that voice of a generation of oh, yeah. protest music, right? Yep. Bob is much more than protest music. And he hates the fact that so many people disassociate him with, with that portion of his career. And so you can see even as early as 1963, him trying to explore other topics and not yeah. just being the new Woody Guthrie. Right. Yeah. So many people, you know, that they equate him really it's blown in the wind. The times they are changing, maybe a hard rain's going to fall. And I would even venture a guess that at least among Gen Xers, those are some of the only songs they know by Dylan, maybe rainy day women. I mean, everybody knows, you know, everybody must get stoned, but um, yeah, no, he, his catalog is incredibly versatile and like I said I almost went with If You See Her Say Hello from um, what is that Blood on the Tracks yep. yeah um, but that was when I was looking at having kind of like a redemptive arc sure. because I was going to close with that one right um, didn't do it but yeah no you're right passive aggressive nature <laughs> of this song is just fantastic so so there's there's anger but it's like somewhat tucked inside it's somewhat disguised if you if you aren't really listening to the lyrics it sounds as kind of a nice it's a, hey yeah it sounds like a pleasant we had a good time together but off, when you get yeah. down to you've just wasted my precious timeline that's the biggest slap in the face there um, there are several really really good covers of this song in fact I have a symphonic cover of this song that appeared on a um, three disc um, Bob Dylan tribute album. Um, I forget. Symphonic yeah, it's like a version. symphonic version of it. That'd be interesting. Um, Indigo Girls did a version of it live, which is which is excellent. In fact, I think I've heard them play it a, a few times. Um, but the one that really is gut wrenching, the one that's really heartbreaking, the one that I almost included, but I decided to stick with Bob. But I'm going to say it. We're going to put it on the altern- alternates and um, and mention song playlist. Is by the un- most unlikely person you could possibly imagine. Let me just describe the song for you. First of all, it's, it's acapella, completely acapella. Okay. The singer is completely devoid of any sort of effects. It's as raw of a vocal you could possibly imagine. Um, the person steps up to the microphone and just sings it raw, emotional, to the point of breaking down while singing in the song. And I was really surprised at first until I learned later on some of the stuff that Kesha had gone through in her oh, career. Oh, yeah. 
Well, it ain't no use to sit and You don't know now. It ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe. It don't matter anyhow. When the rooster crows at the break of dawn. Look out your window and I'll be gone You're the reason I'm driving on Don't think twice, it's alright Well, ain't no use in turning on your light, babe I'd never know Ain't no use in turning on your light, babe I'm on the dark side of the road I wish there was something you would do or say to try to maybe change my mind and stay I never did too much talking anyway Don't think twice, it's alright Where Bob kind of sings it as kind of a nonchalant type of, like I said, passive-aggressive She sings it in a completely, it's, it just shows you the power of performance Because she takes the exact same lyrics and makes a completely different song. Um, yeah, maybe the most gut wrenching of all breakup songs. But I still, I just, I, I wanted to keep uh, Dylan's here just because I like a passive aggressive song once in a while. Oh yeah, no, I, who doesn't? <laughs> so, all right, that's my second pick. All right, no, that should have been your third. Mm, my second pick. No, you had Ben. Oh, third. Oh my goodness, Beatles. yes, yeah. you're right. That was my third pick. Okay, I'm just. If if it was your second, then I skipped a song here. Nope, you're um, good. Okay, well, my number four. Um, this selection begins with the most disconsolate opening line of Elton John's career. Okay, what do I have to do to make you love me? We have an artist match. Do we? Okay, I thought we might. Yeah, I went with "sorry" seems to be the hardest word. Um, it's from Blue Moves, 1976. And it followed a whirlwind of massive success in the mid-70s. And it seemed really that Elton John was growing a bit weary. This double album kind of reflected that. It, it uncharacteristically missed hitting number one on the album chart. But this lead single, and this despondent breakup song, Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word, it hit the top ten, and it has endured as a, as a fan and critical favorite. It also remains a favorite of Elton himself. He still plays it regularly at his live shows. Yeah, Blue, Blue Moon is a pretty uneven album. It um, is. It's very uneven. But it also was the height of his substance abuse. Yes. Um, it's the time when after this album, he got treatment. And he would he would struggle even after that. But right. this was really like the low point. He had just gone off of like six years of releasing three albums a year. And the pressure had got... And right before this album was Captain Fantastic and the Brown Deer Cowboy. Oh, yeah. And that was my pick with Someone Saved My Life Tonight. Okay, yeah. Which was a little more hopeful one. So now I'm not going to have a hopeful <laughs> one to end on. But, uh, but Blue well, Moves itself just kind of showed... I mean, Captain Fantastic was a masterpiece. And then it seems like he just broke and Blue yeah. Moon's... Blue well, Moon... No. Mo- 
Blue Moves was a difficult one. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I don't know that it's a bad idea to end on a hopeful note. Okay. So I would not necessarily say that... Well, I have another hopeful song, so we can decide. Okay. Well, I was going to say, I'm... I'm, I'm I might defer yeah, but, to but, someone but, save my life tonight. I was I, this of all the songs I chose. This is the one that I was most likely to leave off, just because I thought maybe there's there's too much anger, maybe there's too much like you talked about uh, uh, reveling in the fact that you dodged a bullet, which basically is someone save my life tonight, yeah. where he you know was engaged to be married. The whole album, Captain Fantastic and the Brunder Cowboys, autobiographical. Oh yeah, he and, and Bernie's yeah. trials on the way to, to goes up to basically their first album, and so playing all the CD clubs and trying to break into the record industry. And Elton was was engaged um, to be married and just was miserable, right. but didn't know how to end it. And I, I didn't. I got the sense from reading between the lines. I didn't know a lot about it, but it was really kind of a toxic, uh, controlling relationship, and he felt powerless to end it. In fact, he even um, attempted suicide. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so this song is about literally somebody saving his life, but it's also a metaphor in the sense that it convinced him finally to break it off with this, this woman, and uh, the song is kind of like, whew, thank you, because it would have been really bad had I committed to this. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll see when we get there. Um, but yeah, I, I went with this one. I, sorry seems to be the hardest word. I mean, it's it's just laden with dollops of trademark melancholy. Uh, the track painfully captures the complete loss of hope. And it's exactly what a dejected lover wants from a song played just loud enough to drown out his or her sobbing, <laughs> really. I, Elton began writing this song in 75. He was in L.A., and this one is really unique because normally Bernie wrote the lyrics, of course, mm -hmm. and he wrote them first. Right. And then Elton would add the music. But in this one instance, Elton wrote the melody and most of the words as well. And Bernie finished them off. Uh, as Elton explained, I was sitting there at the piano and out it came. What have I got to do to make you love me? So Bernie added uh, in a Music Connection interview that, uh, quote, I don't think... Um, Elton was intending on writing a song, but he was playing around on the piano and he came up with this melody line and I said, hey, that's really nice. And he said, don't do anything more to that. Let me go write something. And then Bernie, of course, went into the other room and he wrote the rest of the song out in just a few minutes and they, they had their song. Um, and it's, I don't know, it, it, reading uh, you know the interview with Bernie Taupin, um, it sounded as though "sorry" seems to be the hardest word almost ran through his head. Um, that it was already in there waiting, and it just uh, you know it was a, it just needed a little prompting, I guess. But yeah, it's it's really unusual that Elton wrote this one uh, himself. Well, it's one of his finest piano compositions. Oh, it is. Yeah. If you if you just stripped, if you took the lyrics out completely and it just became an instrumental piece, it's almost symphonic. Yeah. Um, almost in the way that Billy Joel, uh, you know, he even released a classical. Um, record you know oh, yeah uh, where Elton just has that part of him where he could he could easily transition into classical music yeah well I mean this one it's to me it's just it's so it's so dark and so moody and it, it's to me it perfectly captures you know that that just that void and and that hopelessness that that comes when uh, your your lover has walked out and it's one of the rare occasions when, you know, it was his instrumentation that inspired right. the lyric, as opposed to he and Bernie's routine of the lyrics always coming first. It's just, I, I had to include it. I, this, was one, this was one of the first songs I thought of right. when, when we talked breakup. What am I gonna do to make you love me? 
If there's a low point on my list, this is it. If there's a rock bottom on my list, this song is it. Okay. It's uh, maybe one of the darkest songs. It's one of my favorite songs by R.E.M. Okay. Uh, it's Michael Stipe's favorite R.E.M. song. Hmm. It is, when I said it's hard to believe that Song for the Dumped is on the same album as Smoke, it's hard to believe that Country Feedback is on the same album as Shiny Happy People. <laughs> <laughs> because True. the polar extremes of REM are represented on the same record. And so think how just optimistic and fun and silly shiny happy people is. That is how dark and chaotic and just completely uh, what other <laughs> adjective I can use. You just have to listen to the song. Um, country feedbacks off of 91's Out of Time. And, you know, R.E.M. has dabbled with, there's this term, alt-country, right? Uh, obviously, you have country music, and then you have folk rock, and you have Americana, and all of these types of music kind of dance around country. And I think what happened is country music, and I may be wrong, Alan, so correct me if I'm wrong, because you know more a lot about country than I know you're not truly a country fan, but country music is maybe more traditional in some of its... Uh, uh, if you were to describe country music, you would say that it's a lot more rural sometimes. Uh, it deals with, you know, they're, very, they're story songs, which I love about country. A lot of them are, are story songs. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, um, that's, that was the requisite of, of all country music for the longest time. Right. It's someone like a Jimmy Buffett, who obviously has, who was a country artist and kind of evolved into his own version of, of tropical uh, music. Um, also uses a lot of story songs, but isn't traditionally country because he backed away from singing about, I don't want to use the same joke about what you get, you know, when you play a country music record right. backwards, right? But that there's some truth to that stereotype. And a lot yeah. of country songs traditionally have been about those themes. And so old country kind of came about, or Americana, with artists that were interested in that same folky style, the same type of, of uh, country instruments, a banjo perhaps, or a steel pedal guitar, but have themes that maybe are not traditionally as country. 
country. And so this is a perfect example of that. Uh, country feedback, in fact, my, my guess is it was probably a placeholder title because when they were writing the song and they had this country, there is a steel pedal guitar in the song, uh, that they felt like, okay, this is, we'll call it country, and I don't know, maybe there was a, some feedback at the time when they were putting down the demo, and so they called it country feedback until they came up with a better title, um, which they didn't because they kept it at country feedback. That's just my theory. Um, the song is a reaction, and talk about raw. This is a reaction to an actual end of a relationship for Michael Stipe. Michael Stipe is very cryptic, of course. Uh, that's his thing. He's purposefully cryptic. Um, we don't know exactly with whom or what or how. Uh, but Peter Buck tells us that everything you hear on that song is completely authentic. They had, they had, you know, they'd written the music and they'd toyed around with some of the arrangements. And the day that Michael recorded it, he came in and he came in with a piece of paper with a few words written down. And he just began to sing. And he glanced at, at the words a few times, but most of it was improvisational. And that was it. He walked away and said, I'm done. That's the song. It's the only, only uh, take. And he later admitted, he said, yeah, basically this relationship had just ended. And it was all, it, it represents the random and chaotic manner of, of hitting rock bottom. Because when you listen to the song, it sounds like a bunch of just disjointed images, ones that you could maybe draw lines between, but it, it clearly just shows somebody in pain, somebody who is just, just not even thinking clearly because of the hurt and the betrayal. Yeah. And so this song is, and to say it's my, you know, one of my favorite REM songs, it is because it's somehow easy to listen to, even though it is gut-wrenching. I don't know how to explain that. It's not a song that makes you want to cry, but it's a song that you can relate to, because I think we've all felt like our lives were spiraling out of control at some point, and the chaos that goes around that. But it's somewhat comforting in that... It's, it, 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 it's somebody else basically experienced what you have felt. It's kind of like feeling you're not the only one that ever felt, felt that way. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it's, it's almost consoling. The, the last line says, it's crazy what you could have had. Okay, this is what I love about the song. But it may possibly morph into crazy what you couldn't have. So think of the subtle differences between crazy what you could have had, what you couldn't have, and as he sings it in the Michael Stipe kind of cryptic, uh, sometimes unintelligible way, you can't really tell which he's singing. That is the brilliance of this song. And when you go through it, and again, Stipe's famous for un, uh, misheard lyrics because they very rarely ever publish lyrics. And like I said, he's purposefully un unintelligible. Um, but there's enough in this song that you can pick out um, that's very, very clear what he's trying to say. This flower scores the spills on on a maddening moon is close whose clothes don't fit us right I'm to blame it's all the same it's all the same You come to me with a bone in your hand Come to me with your hair curled tight. You come to me positions. You come to me with excuses. Tucked out in a row. Wear me out. You wear me out. We've been through fake breakdown, self-hurt, plastics, collections, self-help. Self pain, ass, psychics, fuck off. I 
was central I had control I lost my head I need this I need this Paperweight Junk garage Winter rain A honeypot Crazy All the lovers have been tagged Alright, my, no- my number five I almost saved this artist for our next two-part episode, uh, Uncharted. Came real close. This is an artist I don't know that a lot of listeners have heard. I don't know if you're familiar with with her. Um, her name is Allison Sudol, uh, but she went by the stage name of Fine Frenzy. Do you, do you know if I? Yeah, Frenzy? I'm trying to think. There was there was one particular song, and in... there yeah, uh, well, it's probably the one that I'm going. What's with. that? Almost Lover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's another piano ballad. Um, and it was the second single from her 2007 debut album, One Cell in the Sea. I would argue this is not the best song on the album. It is the one song that, if our listeners have heard A Fine Frenzy, they've heard this song. Um, it it didn't chart. I mean, it, it didn't hit the top 40, but it is... Um, it did receive some modest airplay, I guess, especially in the adult contemporary channels, which um, makes sense given the sound of the song. But I'm, I've always been just really shocked that she did not take off on, on the alternative charts. Um, with this album, Once on the Sea, Sudol introduced herself to the world as a passionate, soulful singer uh, with, with heart-rending lyrics and solemn melodies. And, and her music is very ethereal and it is the perfect fit for days in bed mourning the loss of your true love, you know. She has developed a wide fan base, and she still remains largely unknown, though, and, and quietly underrated, which is really a shame for those who haven't yet discovered her, but it's also a joy for her fans who get to keep her all to themselves. Um, our listeners may know Alison Sudol, um, but not as a, as a singer. She's also an actress, and she's probably best known today for her portrayal of Queenie Goldstein in the Fantastic Beasts films. So if you've continued to follow the world of Harry Potter, uh, she she's Queenie in that film series. Sudol's calm but powerful voice on this track, it's, it's almost angelic. And it gives reason to every lyric that she utters. Uh, with a voice like her, no words are dropped. And this makes it incredibly easy to visualize the world that she's creating for you. Her poetry, it, it enchants with this brilliant description, but it also cuts with razor-like precision. And through a powerful use of imagery, she lays the bass emotion in her soft opening verses, but as this song continues, the, that calm trickle of words turns into a raging river. Uh, her, her words and her delivery, and they're just resplendent. She lures the listener in with this false tranquility that just shatters the soul by song's end. Your fingertips across my skin The palm trees swaying in the wind Images You sang me Spanish lullabies The sweetest sadness in your eyes Clever trick Say for me. 
listening not only to almost lover but to the the entirety of her her catalog she's she's one that if if this is your first time listening um hopefully you'll you'll really enjoy what you're about to hear but yeah almost lover it's 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 another one that's almost painful to listen to i mean her devastation comes through you know it it resonates and and just and so easily identifiable if, if you've been there. But yeah, her pain, it's just, uh, it, it's, it, it's, I, I don't even know what I want to say. And it's just, just listen to the song. I mean, it is, I, I love it. And this is another one, um, you know, two people in my life have played a major influence on my musical taste. One is you, and you, you've probably introduced me to, and, and, uh, you know, had me uh, open my mind to to a lot of new bands. I mean, I, I thank you for that. And uh, without question, much of what I listen to is uh, your fault. <laughs> so, but the second person that that has been so instrumental in, in you know the the evolution of my musical taste is my wife. And a fine frenzy is one of her artists. And yeah, I mean, she played the album for me. I mean, it. it I mean, it just spoke to me immediately. It's just beautiful voice singing some of the saddest songs you could imagine so there you go Almost Lover is my number five good no it, I, I know I came across uh, her album or something at the time because it sounds very familiar it, it's haunting but but it's it's beautiful and it's so I, I don't it, it just this wide range of emotion but ultimately it's just it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. and it, it I no no better song to add to to this week's playlist to the mixtape. People are going to have a... If they listen to this mixtape, we're going to... Oh, we're ripping their heart out. <laughs> it be tough to I, I, I kinda, Yeah, I kind of went for that. I mean, if anyone out there listening to us is currently suffering through heartbreak, you've just broken up, you can thank us later because we're giving you the, you know, the mixtape that you probably very much want and need <laughs> right now. If you are content... We're going to depress the hell out of you. So I, I apologize for that, but you know, so many of my mixtapes were breakup mixtapes. This one just felt—I—I I, I don't know—just preparing for this one. Like I said, it, it felt old school because every mixtape I made, I'd say half were f- about falling in love, and the other half were about you know falling, you know, to your knees begging for for love to to stay. So it's it's just—I don't know. Hopefully, we're not turning anybody off they're not so depressed that they've well, if called you, it quits on the episode if you weren't depressed yet folks I said I hit rock bottom last track I was wrong I may be hitting rock bottom on this track okay alright <laughs> so what comes next this is one I actually might have included on, on one of my breakup tapes uh, t- breakup tapes had I made them back then um, some call this the bleakest of all Smith's songs we have a match 
I know it's over. Yep, <laughs> I figured you. We might have, have we have a match. <laughs> when I say that you were, you know, the, without question, the biggest influence on it. Yeah, you introduced me to the Smiths with this song. Did I? Yeah. Okay. And to that this day, sense. the Queen is dead. It remains my favorite album by the band. And this song, only only Morrissey would equate, you know, a breakup to being buried alive. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and I'll just say, the Queen is dead uh, may be the greatest album of the 1980s. I know that's maybe a hot take. Actually, most people put it. I mean, I've seen a lot of those like oh, Rolling Stone lists. Yeah, it's in the top three. You're usually you yeah. Know, it's, but, it's always yeah. Uh, Purple Rain and and Queen is Dead seem to always be near the top. Yeah. But um, now this oh, this song, yeah, it's a direct. Match. Well, in, in fact, some people, you know, we have always interpreted this song as a breakup song. Um, I've argued people, and, and neither of us, I think, are wrong. It's it's the way we interpret the song. But people see this as, as um, uh, differently. We see it as a metaphor of, of death and the death of a relationship and a physical death. Right. But a lot of people see this song as literally somebody on his deathbed with regrets on his life uh, and what he's done with his yeah, life. Yeah, I've, I've read that. I've, I've read a few critical takes where they say that it's about a dying man. Um, right. But now to me, it's just the knife, the ocean wants to take me, the knife wants to slip Let me. me. <laughs> Do you think you can help me? <laughs> yeah, pretty. to me, that's that's not a dying man. That's literally... Just yes. somebody, you know, I can feel the soil falling over my... For, it, it is, it's so dark. It's, it's For a band who's known for bleak songs, to this be the bleakest of them all is pretty bleak. Yeah. Uh, it's also widely viewed as one of Morrissey's finest vocal performances. And I remember when I did introduce you to Morrissey and the Smiths, and I think you, the first... I remember you saying you really thought his vocal performances were unique. And oh, yeah. In, in some of the tradition of the greatest crooners, uh, it's just... His vocal prowess. Yeah, he's, he's incredible. Um, yeah, his voice. I mean, Morrissey himself has been somewhat problematic, especially lately, but uh-huh, yeah. that's, again, a whole other podcast. Um, like most Smith songs, Johnny Marr writes the music and Morrissey the lyrics. Uh, in this case, Morrissey refused to show the rest of the band the lyrics until the music was actually written and recorded. And then he came in, kind of, kind of sounds like what Michael Stipe did with uh, Country Feedback. So maybe when you talk about songs that are really personal, it's a lot easier um, to just come in and perform without having a lot of rehearsal. I think it also allows, um, or maybe it prevents other people from tinkering too much with your vision, right? Yeah. If you wait to the last minute and you lay it down, it's good, then you don't have to worry about too many other creative voices trying to talk you out of it. But for whatever reason, he refused to show the rest of the band. Um, Marr and Marr Morrissey have had their differences, um, clearly. But Marr later said that witnessing Morrissey record this song was one of the highlights of his entire life. Handsome groom, give her room 
selfish lover, treat her kindly, though she needs you more than she loves you. And I know it's over, still I claim, I don't know where else I can go, over Like I said, some listeners interpret this literally as being about dying, um, but I and you and I have always heard it as a breakup song. That opening, right? Oh, mother, I can feel the soil falling over my head. Uh, to me, is a, a metaphor for the death of a relationship. That final verse proclaims, you know, love is natural and real, but not for you, my love, not tonight, my love. Love is natural and real, but not for such as you and I, my love. And to me, that kind of clinches it as a breakup song. Well, and you know, so much of what Morrissey sings in this song is so uncharacteristically Morrissey. And just the idea of when he says it takes guts to be gentle and kind, that is not your typical Morrissey Yeah, no, there is, there is a little, there's a verse in there that's somewhat hopeful yeah it, it's very unlike his, it, it just what what you come to expect but i mean it that does not make this a hopeful song i mean right. the song is right you know um yeah you're right i mean it features marcy's most spectacular vocal performance i think and he does it begins on the dark side you know and then the song just gets darker i mean it slips into a late night soliloquy for like six tormented minutes and it's just it doesn't get better than this and he does. He does have that voice of a crooner. I mean, love is natural and real. I mean, you can see him crooning it, you know, to the mirror as, as he as he goes through this. And at least that's how I imagine it. But but not for such as you and I, my love, which you just named. I mean, it's oh, it, the song just it derives its strength really from its its sparseness. I mean, it, it's so it's another song that's just so bare bones yeah you know yeah even the bass line like Andy Rourke is one of my favorite bass players of all time he's a very creative he's a very active uh, bass player um, this song it's just a very um, I want to say he's, he's not showing off in this song but yeah. the bass in the song is even though it's a simple uh, line it's it it, 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 it it kind of is part of the starkness right you don't have a lot of an arrangement you you have the bass you have his vocal um, you have a few other, you know, instruments in there for good measure, but they're really, really kind of pushed back in the mix, and it's pretty much just the bass line and and Morrissey's voice. Well, and and Mar, I mean, his his guitar is so restrained. Yeah, he has he has the, the 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 chimey guitar is there, but it's it's, but it's, it's pushed it's, back a little yeah, bit. It's very yeah, um, it, it's almost a virtuoso showcase for all four members. Or, you know, it, it's just. I would suggest, and it's probably virtually impossible given Morrissey's persona, but you know, the next time that our listeners listen to the song, try to tune out Morrissey, if that's possible, and just focus on how Mar kind of crafts the, the whole thing. You know, it's just a fiendishly clever way. He, oh, makes, yeah. he makes the guitar rise and fall, yeah. you know, and it, he stre- it's almost like stretching a tightrope, just long enough for his partner to step out for the dance of his life as he sings with so much conviction it, it's just yeah I, I knew you'd have it but you know a lot of times I just when I'm that confident I, I don't include it on the list but it had a place on my, on my own because this this track it just it kills me 
and it's it is it's so it it doesn't get darker than this yeah (laughs) Uh, okay Uh, you have one more for this episode yes i do um i'm gonna have to go to my by the way i had um they they were i know it's over was the first track of side b okay so i don't have to hit the alternates until next week but i actually end this episode with a track from Derek and the dominoes have you ever loved a woman no no, I'm surprised that you went there. Well, just because that that song is it's more about unrequited love right. than, than a breakup, but that's it's a pretty gut wrenching song. It so is. I'm trying to think from Derek and the Dominoes. Okay, well, Layla and other they only had one album, right? Layla and other sort of love songs. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was the sole studio album, right? Right. It was a double length LP mm-hmm. and 14 tracks on the album um, included a few traditional blues jams along with original compositions written mainly by Eric Clapton and Bobby Whitlock. Although the album was originally panned by critics and record buyers like it, it's deservedly grown in stature over the decades to become a bona fide classic rock gem. And in my opinion, I mean, if, I, we've already discussed in, in the past that I, I'm a huge Clapton fan. I, I think it's his, it's Clapton's best overall effort in the entirety of his career. Did you go with Layla? No, did not okay. go with Layla. Right. Um, so here's the thing. The album begins with I Looked Away, which is not my pick. Um, That's what opens side one. And it's the first of several songs to reflect on Clapton's obsession with Patty Boyd. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in fact, every song on the album reflects a different view of love, and every one features Boyd as Clapton's constant protagonist, except one. Um, I went with Bell Bottom Blues. Oh, yeah. Which to me is one of the most heartbreaking songs ever written. No, yeah. No, just say it. Um, but but here's the thing about Bell Bottom Blues. It, this was the one that was not written for George Harrison's wife. Okay, um, basically, Derek and the Dominoes they they formed after Clapton, Whitlock, Carl Rado, and and Jim Gordon worked on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. They went to England and they played a bunch of small clubs all over Europe. And um, Clapton and Whitlock began writing songs along the way. Well, when the band was in France, Clapton met a girl that he described as, quote, a Persian princess, <laughs> okay? She was really into him. He was really into her. He gave her a slide that Dwayne Allman had given him. He wrapped it in leather, and she wore it around her neck. Here's the thing. She didn't speak a word of English, <laughs> and the two of them had to date through an interpreter, which to me sounds incredibly romantic. <laughs> but, but Clapton's former band members, what they remember best about her, though, is that she had an affinity for bell-bottoms, Okay. The relationship lasted just one week, and after they parted ways, Whitlock found Clapton standing in his doorway, and Clapton was holding his guitar, and he asked Whitlock, what do you think of this? And he he sang for Whitlock the first two verses of the new song, all except the last line of the second verse, which Clapton was struggling to write, but Whitlock didn't miss a beat. He looked at Clapton and said, you won't find a better loser. So happy with Whitlock's contribution, Clapton went inside. Together, they proceeded to write the third verse, the chorus, the bridge. Uh, and, and that bridge. Do you want to see me crawl across the floor to you? Do you want to hear me to beg you to take me back? I'll gladly do it. So it was inspired by her, but the song really it doesn't reflect. No, no it does not the reflect real, real what experience. Okay, exactly. okay. Yeah, the, the song that gives the album its name, you know, is on side four. Layla is on side four. It's near the end of the running order. But the heart and soul of this album is right up front on side one. And without a doubt, Bell Bottom Blues is the best and most emotional of these love songs. 
It's authentic, it's bluesy, it's soulful, and the, the passion just pours out of every line. But particularly in the chorus with Clapton crooning, I don't want to fade away, in your heart I long to stay, it, it's as clear a distillation of romantic despair as you'll find in, in you know, the most soulful vocal Clapton has ever put to tape. Um, the song's post-chorus has an extraordinarily brilliant progression that, when played over and over, creates a recursion of emotion that never dulls and never never fades. And yeah, Bell Bottom Blues, it also sounds like the perfect culmination of everything Clapton did to that point in his career. I mean, it's just, it still is his finest vocal performance. Tears in Heaven might be a close second, but this one, I mean, with, with its melancholy desperation of unrequited love, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing, given that he recorded most of the song while lying on the floor strung out on drugs. Yeah. So, but what really sets it apart from the rest of the tracks on Layla and other sort of love songs, this one is, you know, it's the unique, uh, you know, the singular example where um, the bell-bottom uh, muse was not Patty Boyd. Of course, because I thought you would go there immediately when you started. I'm not a lyrics person, so I know the song. I had no idea it was about a really. Breakup. I had no idea. Oh, dang! The only thing when you said that, I, I know the first line, "Bell Bottom Blues," and everything else in my mind. I'm thinking of the guitar solo. I'm thinking of the <laughs> the uh, the chord progressions. Oh. I'm thinking of the percussion. I'm, I I couldn't tell you what the lyrics. You're killing are. me, Smalls. For as much as you and I are alike, I don't want to fade there, away. I remember that part yeah, too. There, are, there, are, there. Are, uh, we both approach music in different ways it's, which is kind of cool I mean we compliment I like to read well, my poetry okay. thank you very much uh, okay <laughs> so you would be no fun in a in a coffee house well to me to me the, vo- <laughs> the, the vocals to me um, it become another instrument they do and and the way you handle the vocal is important to me the the, the, the tone the timbre of your voice the, the you know the meaning is just another it was a bonus I should say okay but you could sing nonsense and if the song is there I'm fine if you have brilliant lyrics and the music is boring then it's spoken poetry to me that's fair I to me I look at the whole package but I, I'm always looking for oh I, I love poetry so I mean I, I just I immediately tune into to what's being said I guess but yeah. I, every day I've, I, I seems I come across a song that I didn't know anything about lyrically like I'll play stuff in the music all the time and my wife will make a comment about it and I say what do you mean 
and and she's like, did you listen to the lyrics of the songs? And then I'll, I had to actively, like, I had to force myself to ignore. The music is so prevalent in my brain, I don't have room for all of it, I guess, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, and yeah, so to listen to the lyrics, I almost had to look them up online and read them while it's going through, because otherwise I just get distracted by the music, because to me, that's the real star. Okay. Now, I, I, I love it all, and I totally respect it. But yeah, no, Bell Bottom Blues... I'll make you focus. All right, listen through here later. But it's yeah, it, no, it's it's one for the ages. It it is clearly. I mean, it's it's it is a sad breakup tune. So, all right, you're number six. All right, and my last pick for side A is another song I know you know. It's from an album uh, that may be again. I always say it's my favorite album, but it's got to be in the top ten of the '80s for me, and maybe in the top fifty of all time, at least the top 100 of all time, and my favorite from the Smithereens, this is from Especially For You, mm-hmm. In A Lonely Place. Yep. This uh, was the song that introduced me to the band. I became an instant fan, and then when later when I picked up the, the record, everything just fell into place. Um, these guys are, you know, they're, they're hearts in the 60s, uh, but they were an alternative um, jangle band in the tradition of R.E.M., uh, but they were from the North as opposed to the South, and so they're, you know, and of course they didn't explode like R.E.M. did, uh, but they had their fair share of commercial success, and I'd argue the more commercial successful they got, the less interested I was in the smithereens. I hate to say that. Um, I, you know, especially for you and Green Thoughts, to me, are just their two most incredible albums. Then you get into Eleven, where they start to find some commercial success. Eh, I, I enjoyed Eleven. It was it was too much passion. Was the that was the fourth that, album? I yeah, think. Yeah, that that was the turning point. Right. That that was when there was no coming back. They they were no longer right. You know, um, they they just weren't the Jersey rockers that they had been. Um, but here's another example. I mean, Smithereens, you introduced me to the Smithereens. And I go. Oh. And we saw them in Toledo in a and, ballroom. And we, yeah, we saw them. That was still the most intimate concert. I, yeah. I mean, I could have reached out and shook the man's hand. And, well, I think that was before we had discovered, because um, we were, I think, probably freshmen in college. Oh, was it first? Was it that? So that a lot of our concert experiences were just going to, to the big ones, you know, like at the Coliseum or mm-hmm. the stadium. Um, of course, later on, going to see indie bands all the time and, and little dives became. Right. A highlight for me. You're right. I think this is one of the first performances where it was in a very small space. Yeah. Uh, but it was a band that I loved, and we were literally like you know feet away from the band. Yeah. No. I mean, I've I've since seen, you know, especially independent or or up and coming artists. You know, um, in in intimate, especially in Cleveland. I mean, you go to you, you, there are so many venues where you can go right up and, and stand. You know, nose to nose with them, but yeah, this was the one that really stands out. It was the first, and still, it remains, I think, the the most intimate. Not only because of the size of the venue, but it was an artist who they had been around long enough that they had already a major. You know, they they had a full catalog, mm-hmm. and I I was familiar with all of it. So a lot of times when I go to smaller venues now with with that intimate experience, I know a song or two from an artist that may or may not go somewhere you know it, it, it the smithereens was a different just a different scenario for me yeah. and yeah a, a great concert well this yeah this this song uh it's again, again another all of these songs are sad breakup songs right um but this one was was actually inspired by the 1950 movie uh of the same name starring humphrey bogart and a lot of the lyrics are taken almost verbatim from lines of, of dialogue so Lyrics like, I was born the day I met you, lived a while when you loved me, died a little when we broke apart. 
That's, that's pretty sad stuff. Yeah. Yesterday, it would have mattered. Now today, it doesn't mean a thing. All my hopes and dreams are shattered now. And yeah, a lot of that taken directly from the movie. Um, a little known fact, uh, Suzanne Vega sings backup on this song. Really? I didn't and know that. A, a more of a, or I guess less of a known fact than that is the fact, it's not that he was looking for someone back up and his management company or the record label said, hey, we got someone great to sing back up on your track. No, they worked together in an office before they became uh, pop stars or rock stars. They were just, I don't know, if, I, I always think of like he's making copies and she's, you know, working accounts or something, but they were, they were friends beforehand. Uh, especially for you, unfortunately, has been pulled from Spotify about three months ago. And I tried to look into it. I couldn't find any uh, hardcore information other than a lot of other people asking questions as well. Uh, usually what happens, there's some type of contractual dispute. Right. Now, Pat Denisio did pass away several years ago. The band is forging forward. They have guest vocalists Mar like Marshall Crenshaw and um, uh, Robin, what's his last name, from, from Jim Blossoms. But, uh, but Denisio is out of the picture. And, you know, they've been continuing to make uh, albums over the last 20, 30 years. A lot of them are cover albums. They did a Beatles cover album. I have, yeah, I, I own the Beatles. And they even they even re-recorded um, a lot of their songs, uh, and they have, it's called Greatest Hits um, Revisited. And it was released before Denizio's death. Huh. Um, a lot of times when you see artists redo a song that's not on Spotify because it's contractual, then they re-record it so they can try and get, and you can usually tell a difference, but they try to get away with basically recording it the same, which to me always seemed a little bit cheap. Um, I haven't heard yet. My daughter tells me, you know, Taylor has done this very thing because the first several albums and contractual disputes, she's re-recording her earlier albums. Hmm. Um, I hope it's a case where she's kind of reinterpreted them in a way that they're not just trying to be a facsimile of her earlier stuff. Well, that's what this album is. Um, it, it, it's, it's in a lonely place. And it's similar at the beginning, but then they kind of, it evolves. There's a great guitar solo at the end of it. They weren't trying to carbon copy the original. They were trying to reinterpret an old classic as older musicians. I heard it said somewhere that one day all good things come to end. And I'd turn around to see you if I do or not it all. I was born the day I met you Lived a while when you loved me Thought a little when we broke apart Yesterday it would have mattered Now today it doesn't mean a thing All my hopes and dreams have shattered Sometimes I think about you I look at strangers past And wonder how I live without your love 
what really attracted me to the song the first time I heard it, again, going from a musical perspective um, more than lyrics, is the, and I'm not sure, I always get them confused, the, the vibes and the xylophone. I wasn't a percussionist, so I know they're very similar instruments, but it's either vibes or xylophone that begins the intro to that song on top of the guitar and the bass and the percussion right. that really gave it this almost jazzy 1960s feel. And I, but it was alternative, right? It was jangle. It was like, oh, wow, like this is, this is cool. It's like, you know... R.E.M., but with, with vibes. And then the song itself. And if you listen to a lot of Smithereens, a lot of it's very self-deprecating, really depressing. Not quite as much as Delamitri, but in some cases it gets close to that. And this song is no exception. Hmm. Yep. No, it's a great choice. I, Well, honestly, the Smithereens had several songs you could have picked yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but no, this one's stellar. And I'm looking forward to, the, to hearing the, you know, that reinterpretation, I, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, I think his voice is a little bit deeper. The, you know, their musicianship has tightened up. Um, there's better musicians because they played longer together. But the fact that they went ahead and they took it a, a different step at the end of the song kind of clinched it for me. Very cool. All right, so that's all we have for side A. Yeah, that's side A. Um, my side B gets, I would argue, I'm looking ahead here, Side B might be more depressing than side A. <laughs> but, well, no, I don't know if that's true. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, we, we have another 12 songs to break your heart next week. So uh, hopefully we didn't uh, lose you midway through this first part. Um, a quick shout-out to our sponsor, Jay Gallahan Painting. Uh, you can find her on Facebook. Uh, she serves the greater Cleveland area. Uh, for all of your painting needs, look her up. She does an incredible job. That's it. That's all, all I got. All right. Well, that's all for this week. Hot fun, cool punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject, and we will see you on the flip side. Mm-hmm.